Good morning. My name is Adam. I'm excited to be with you all this morning. How many of you ever had a treehouse when you were growing up? All right, a few of you. Some of you look like you were missing out. I had a really awesome treehouse when I was a kid that my dad built for me and my younger sisters. And I wish that I had a real picture of it to show you guys, but I don't. I've got the next best thing, and that's a picture that I drew myself. <laughs> Some nice artwork there. Yeah, this treehouse was pretty sweet. Like, this was my fortress as a kid. If you wanted to get up into this tree, you had to climb up these ladder rungs, and then you had to, like, cross this bridge between two trees to get up into that rectangle up there. That's actually like a platform that had a trap door in the center. And so to get up there, you'd have to open up the trap door, get your elbows over the platform, and then like wiggle your way up through the opening. And it was pretty challenging to get up there, but I liked the challenge. And I think what was even more entertaining was watching my friends try to get up through there. They'd be like a fish out of water, like flopping around, trying to get up to that top platform. And I think the best thing as a kid about a treehouse is that it was so easy to turn it into an exclusive club. Or at least for me, since I was the oldest in my family and I just had three younger sisters, so I was like the top dog. If anybody else wanted to get up into this treehouse, I'd probably like charge them candy as an entrance fee or they would have to go through some kind of initiation ceremony if they wanted to be part of the club. They had to know the password. Or sometimes the rule was straight up, no girls allowed. And so I made more than a few girls cry when I was younger. And I would like to think that that's no longer true of me today. But turning a treehouse into an exclusive club, it's all fun and games when you're younger. But the consequence of turning a church into an exclusive club is tragic. A treehouse church is the kind of church that requires the outsiders to jump through all kinds of hoops before they can feel welcomed and accepted. The treehouse church is the kind of church that makes it so that new people and outsiders have to park in the far reaches of the parking lot because all of the closer parking spaces are taken. Or if somebody comes to a treehouse church and they're not already in the in crowd, maybe they show up a little bit late and all the back row seating is taken. And so they have to make the walk of shame to the front row in the most awkward preaching or seating where the pastor just like stares right at them. Or maybe the challenge with this treehouse church is that they, new, new people and guests have to go a whole month without somebody coming up and asking their name or talking to them. Maybe that sounds pretty ridiculous to you, but there are churches like that. And some of you can maybe think of some personal experiences that you've had, and hopefully Bridgewater Church doesn't come to your mind when you think about that kind of church. But if we don't keep our focus in the right place, we too could become like an exclusive church or a treehouse church. And our mission comes from the last words of Jesus before he went up to heaven. He's, 
And his one job for his disciples was to go out and make more disciples. And that's what we talked about last week, that our mission as a church is to make more and better disciples for Jesus. Or another way that Jesse put it is that a healthy and biblical church is a church where everybody is helping somebody take a next step towards or with God. And that is what we are all about. And so the question that I want to answer this morning is what can we do to see more people come to faith in God? And functioning as a treehouse church is certainly not going to get us there. And so let's take a look at God's word for the answer. And if you'd like to follow along with me, you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. The book of Acts is pretty much the continuation of the events that happened after the gospel. It's about what happened after Jesus went back to heaven, and it's about the startup of the early church. And as we said before, before Jesus went back into heaven, he gave his disciples this one job, to make more disciples. And the events in this chapter are about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And over the course of that 20 years, the followers of Jesus took that job seriously. They made more disciples who made more disciples who made more disciples. But somewhere along the way, they needed some quality control. And so we're going to check out what's going on here in verse 1. And it's going to be up on the screen, too, if you'd like to follow along. It says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. All right there. We got this group of people coming down from Judea, and they're making these believers doubt their salvation. They're saying, unless you're circumcised, you're not really saved. And you've probably heard before that Salvation is by grace through faith. These guys are saying salvation is by grace through faith with circumcision. Or in other words, you have to have a surgery in order to get into heaven. Like, this is crazy. But to see where these guys are coming from, they're probably Jews. And to them, circumcision wasn't just a religious tradition. It was so linked to their heritage and it was a symbol of the covenant that God had with Abraham. And then this was repeated in the law of Moses. And Moses gave some commandments for, for those who weren't of the Jewish faith. And this is what it says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 48. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born of the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it, and the same law applies to both the native-born and to the foreigner residing among you. So if a non-Jew wanted to participate in these Jewish celebrations, he would have to be circumcised. And these people who came down from Judea are applying the same thing to salvation. They're pretty much saying, if you want to become a Christian, you first need to become a Jew. 
But thankfully, Paul and Barnabas were there to keep these guys in check. And so let's see what goes on in verse 2. It says, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them, so that Paul and Barnabas appointed, along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And the news made all the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Paul and Barnabas are like MVP missionaries. These guys have been all over the place taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And Gentiles are really just people who are not Jews. And from Paul and Barnabas' experience, they've seen these people come to faith in Jesus, and circumcision was not a requirement for that. And so when they got into this debate with these people from Judea about whether circumcision was necessary for salvation, they just didn't see eye to eye. And that that debate wasn't settled right then and there. And so they decided to take this matter before the council of apostles and elders in Jerusalem. And this was pretty much just a pastor's conference. And the keynote speakers at this conference were the Pharisees and Peter, one of Jesus' original disciples, and then James, the half-brother of Jesus. And at this council, the Pharisees went up first. It says in Acts 15, 5, verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, Pharisees were known for being super strict religious people. Like, they were very particular about keeping the law of Moses, and so much so that they would add extra laws on top of that just to make sure that they didn't even come close to breaking the law. And normally, when we think of the Pharisees, we probably think of them as the guys who opposed Jesus' ministry. Like, they were doing so well with keeping the law to a T, but their hearts were rotten on the inside. But in this case... It's not like these believer, or these Pharisees are unbelievers just because they're a Pharisee. They're still from that tradition, but they were followers of Jesus, and they wanted to see more Gentiles come to faith in Jesus as well. But their hang-up is that they weren't willing to let their tradition and their preferences take a back seat. And after talking about it for a while, Then Peter, one of Jesus' original disciples, came up and he gave his presentation. And he was talking about how he had witnessed the Gentiles come to faith in Jesus. Whether or not they were circumcised, when they came to this faith, they still received the Holy Spirit. And anyone receiving the Holy Spirit shows as a mark of their true salvation. And Peter is saying they don't have to have this outward surgery because their hearts are purified by faith. And then Paul and Barnabas confirmed Peter's experience. They shared about how they had been reaching the Gentiles and how they'd been coming to faith in Jesus. And then next up, 
James, the half-brother of Jesus, was like, you know what? Peter was right in saying that God is choosing to make the Gentiles his people. And then he quoted a passage of scripture from the book of Amos. And it says this in verse 16. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. And here's the point that James is making from bringing up this passage. He's saying this scripture talks about the Gentiles bearing the name of God. God is choosing them for his people, and it doesn't say anything about circumcision. And so that leads him to this conclusion. It says in verse 19, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. It's a pretty simple and concise statement. And it also answers our question of how can we see more people come to faith in God? This is where we get the answer to that. Is that we should not make it difficult for people to come to God. The message of the gospel can be hard enough for people to take in. I mean, nobody likes to hear that they are a sinner and that, that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. And not only that, but to be a follower of Jesus, you have to deny yourself. You can't just give God 80, 90% of your life. Jesus is asking for 100% of your heart. And that's a big ask. And so in light of that, we don't want to have any unnecessary barriers in the way of people coming to God. And that shapes the way that we do things at Bridgewater. That's why we play the music that we play. We play contemporary music because we ask the question, what style of music can help us make more and better disciples for Jesus? And we believe that this just represents the style of music that people are listening to these days. I like listening to hymns. I grew up singing hymns. I even have a few on my playlist. Got a few acapella songs on my playlist that I get teased about all the time. But if we were to just flip through stations on the radio, we probably wouldn't find too many radio stations playing choir music or organ music. And even if that might be your preference, I get it. But 15 years ago, Bridgewater made a transition from a more traditional style of music to playing more of a rock style of music. And they found that that was more of a bridge than a barrier for people coming to God. It's important for us to sing songs that help us worship God, but there's no certain music style that is holier than another style. And we're not married to this method of playing music with guitars and drums. It's not like this is the only way to go. It's going to be rock music till the rapture. We're just going to keep asking ourselves the question, what style of music can help us make more and better disciples of Jesus? And if we ever get a different answer to that question than what we're doing now, 
then we would change to a different genre of music. And as a church, we even work hard at developing a culture where people feel comfortable coming in wearing everyday clothes. We don't want to make it difficult for people to come to God because they feel uncomfortable about the way that they dress to church. When I invite people to church, I think the most common question that I get is, do I have to dress up? And I understand where they're coming for, coming from. Like, have you ever been there where you show up to an event, you look around at everybody else, and you're like, oh, shoot, I did not dress right for that. I do that all the time. I'll think like, yep, my mom was right. I should have followed her dressing advice. And it can feel pretty awkward. And so that's why we don't want to have a church culture that expects people to wear suits and dresses to Sunday services. Back in the 1940s and 1950s, it was common for men to wear suits to their place of employment and then to wear their suit to go out to eat. It was normal and even expected to dress up to go to church, or at least so I'm told because that was way before my time. But I can even remember how this kind of tradition of dressing up for the church uh, affected me in my childhood. Like when I was younger, I was told that I needed to dress up because they would be giving my best to God. I certainly wasn't giving God my best attitude when I had to go to church with a necktie. And I even remember the first time that I wore jeans to church. I thought that I was such a rebel. Even like when I walked through the doors of the building, I expected to get hit with a lightning bolt. I was like, oh no, I'm on holy ground here. This isn't right. And growing up in that kind of tradition, I could usually spot the people who weren't regular church attenders. I'm like, oh man, they didn't get the memo or something. They're not giving their best to God. Because I could point them out like wearing sweatpants or a t-shirt to church. But we don't want something like this to get in the way of people coming to God. I, I heard uh, a story of this guy who was talking to one of the other Bridgewater pastors and saying how he had this church experience where he was going to this church pretty consistently until somebody came up and told him that if he wanted to keep on coming to this church, that he would have to buy a suit. And since then, he's not gone back to that particular church. And I don't think he's gone back to any church since then. We also need to be careful that we don't swing too far in the other direction and make people feel uncomfortable if they come up come to church looking all dressed up. Like some people, they just can't help it if they make their clothes look good. You know what I'm saying? Even at the Montrose campus, Pastor Bob's probably going to talk about how in certain regions of India, the, the culture is where the men wear skirts to church and then the women wear pants. And he would probably tell you that if he was in that culture, he would take it upon himself to wear a skirt to church. And he's a more godly man than I am because I don't think that I could pull it off. <laughs> we should not allow something so insignificant or such a minor thing as clothing to be a barrier that keeps people from coming to God. Another thing that we do here at Bridgewater is use the NIV translation. 
And there's a lot of really good translations out there. We use the NIV because it just puts the Bible in words that we use on a day-to-day basis, like normal English words. There's some other translations, like the King James Version, that I just wouldn't recommend to try to share the gospel with somebody who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. I even remember when I was at college that I had a guy in my suite who was like, man, I don't know if I can date this girl. I'm like, oh, yeah? Why is that? It's because she's not King James only. I was like, bro, the King James translation doesn't just make it hard for people to come to faith in God. It makes it hard to get a date. (laughs) That's tough. And we don't just play contemporary music, dress casually, or use the NIV to attract more people through our doors on a Sunday morning. It's not about having a higher attendance because that is not the win. But our Sunday services are for making more and better disciples of Jesus. And that is the win. Or as we said it last week, making more and better disciples of Jesus is the foundation of Bridgewater Church. We don't want to be a treehouse church. We don't want our Sunday services just to be about what makes us comfortable or just carrying on with traditions or meeting our preferences. We want to view our Sunday services as a front porch to a house. And the porch is where we welcome our guests. Our porch is the first part that people enter. And for most, per, most people, their first interaction with our church comes from a Sunday morning. And we want to make our porch as inviting as possible so that our guests don't just stop there, but then they take a step further and they come into the living room and they get involved in small groups and they take a step further from there into the kitchen and they get involved through serving. And in order to make our Sunday services more inviting to guests, sometimes we have to give up our preferences. We've got a really awesome team of greeters here. And you see those people standing out in the lobby greeting people. And I'm sure that there's times when they just want to talk to their friends. It's more comfortable to talk to the people that you already know. But they are staying on mission and trying to just make the church a welcoming environment. We have guys who are out in the street, rain or shine, even if it's snowing, and helping people cross the street. And it's not because they love to be out there in the snow or in the rain, but they see the bigger picture. And what they are doing is making it easier for people to come to faith in God by removing any barriers that could keep them from really accepting the gospel. And making the church a welcoming environment, it doesn't water down the truth of the Bible. Actually, the opposite is true. Making the church a welcoming environment makes the message of the Bible even more potent. And a church that adjusts its, message, its methods to fit the culture is not necessarily a wishy-washy or superficial church. Pastor and author Rick Warren says, We invite unchurched to come and sit on 17th century chairs, which we called pews, sing 18th century songs, which we call hymns, and listen to 19th century instrument 
called a pipe organ. And we wonder why they think our church is out of touch. Now, Rick Warren's not just bashing traditional churches. This is a wake-up call and what it takes to reach people. Our message and what we're all about as a church and our commitment to the word of God stays the same. But our methods in reaching people or the way that we package the truth of God's word should change based on the culture or the people that we're trying to reach. Different houses have different style porches depending on where that house is located or the the style of neighboring houses. So just to show you some examples, if I lived out in the country, I would want a porch like this. Super practical, can keep your firewood dry, probably do some grilling out there. And this porch, I think, just sends the message of, come on in, you don't even have to take your shoes off, and it's probably venison for dinner. I'm all about that. (laughs) This style porch would be really out of place in the city, probably even creepy. Like porches in the city will tend to be a bit smaller, not have as much clutter on the stairs, and just give you a nice straight straight shot inside. And this is different also than the kind of porch that you would probably see down south or in more tropical regions. This would not fly in the city. It's too delicate and obviously not a lot of privacy. But this porch sends the message of, come on in, you can probably get a suntan, drink some lemonade, and it's a very welcoming environment. There's not one style porch that's inherently better than another style. It's just a matter of whether or not that style porch fits the location and the culture. And we don't And the way that we do our Sunday services really does make a difference for people coming to God. And this series, Open House, isn't just about look what Bridgewater does and just show you how Bridgewater does everything right. But this series is to show you that we have a reason for how we do things and that we use Scripture as a guide. And God has been using the ministry at Bridgewater to help people come to God. And we have some numbers. Just over the last 10 years, we've been able to celebrate 705 people coming to faith in Jesus. And over that same 10 years, we've celebrated 628 baptisms. People taking that step to say that they are identifying themselves as a sold-out follower of Jesus. And our kids' ministry from 10 years ago of 70 kids has grown to 300 kids between all of our Bridgewater campuses. And this isn't just something for us to like give ourselves a pat on the back for. I think God deserves all the glory for that. But isn't it so awesome that we get to be a part of that work that God is doing? And we said this last week, it's not just about numbers, but numbers represent people We're talking about neighbors, friends, and family members who've been changed by the good news of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I get excited about that. And that's why we do not want to make it difficult for people to come to God. And so that just leaves us with this question, what are we going to do about that? 
What can you do to make the church more inviting? And sometimes it's really the little things that can make a big difference. You could see it as your ministry to sit in the front row. I get it. I'm kind of a back row Baptist too. I think that the front rows can be a little bit awkward. But just think about how, more, how much more awkward that is for people who aren't regular attenders at the church. Maybe they come in for the first time and the back row seating is taken up and so they have to come sit in the front. You can see it as your ministry to just remove that barrier from anyone coming to Christ. You could also be more intentional about filling out the center rows instead of sitting on the end so that when somebody comes in, they don't have to like squeeze by you to get to the middle seats. You could see it as your ministry to park a little bit further away from the church building and just leave the closer parking spaces for the new people or the people who are not yet believers. You can make the church a more welcoming place by setting a goal of just talking to one new person every week. And maybe you don't know who's new or who's been coming here for a while, but just talk to somebody that you haven't talked to before. And I've been here for only a few months now, and I'm still trying to get to know people too. And every Sunday I have to come in with that kind of mindset of trying to talk to new people because I can just gravitate towards talking to the people that I'm already friends with and already have a relationship with. But God can use you to knock down some of those barriers and make it easier for those people to come to faith in Jesus. These are just a few small steps, but I believe that this kind of intentionality can make a difference when we remove the distractions from the message of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that the truth of your word does not change. I thank you that the message of the gospel, it gives hope and it gives life. And I'm so thankful that your word is relevant, that we don't have to make it relevant, but I ask that we would show that to be true. I ask that we would uh, just have a burden for people who are not yet here, for people who do not yet have a relationship with you. And I ask that we would be all about making more and better disciples, not just to uh, get excited about being part of something or seeing more numbers, but we know that this is something that's close to your heart. And we ask that it would be close to our heart as well. And we know that it makes a difference for eternity. And so I ask that you would help us to keep that focus. And I ask that you would be glorified in everything that we do. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.